Well, good morning. How are y'all doing? You take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And we've been studying Acts on Sunday mornings. We're back in Acts. Last week we were... Uh, where were we? Anybody remember? Matthew. We were in Matthew looking at a resurrection account. And uh, this week uh, we are continuing our study in the book of Acts. And so what we're doing in this study, kind of the objective is we're leaning in. Uh, We're taking a close look at the early church, uh, the early days in the life of the early church, and it's really to help our church, to help Schindler Drive Baptist Church. It's part of the universal church to help us keep the main things, the main things, to help us as we seek to faithfully continue the work of Jesus's movement in our community and to the ends of the earth. And what we're going to see that we need in our lives to help to do our part, to be uh, faithful in that movement, is we're going to need some boldness. We're going to need some bravery. We don't talk about bravery a whole lot in church, but the Bible has a lot to say about courage, has a lot to say about bravery. And when we talk about being brave, what do you think of? You think about people who are brave. We often think of movies or stories. Uh, We like stories about uh, bravery. Maybe we think about the guy flying through the air with the big S on his chest with a cape. Uh, Maybe Uh, There's some movie or some superhero or a comic book type thing you think of when you hear the word bravery. Uh, I I love, our family loves movies. We like to watch movies. And uh, what I like to do is I like to introduce uh, our kids to movies that I like. Uh, Parents, uh, maybe you're walking through that. And uh, and a story or a movie that I really like, it's a trilogy, is The Lord of the Rings. I love The Lord of the Rings. I love that story. Now, some of y'all are like, really? Like he was up there talking about Star Wars a couple weeks ago. So he doesn't like a fantasy story about lightsabers and spaceships, but enjoys a fantasy story about hobbits and wizards and elves. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't have time to explain. They're just different, all right? <laughs> but my favorite scene of the whole series is in the second installment, The Two Towers. It's a battle at Helm's Deep. It's a big battle that goes on. It's intense. And all the good guys, I'll just set it up for you. They've uh, retreated to a big fortress in the mountains, and they're waiting for an opposing army, the opposing army, to show up in the distance. And it doesn't look good. It looks grim. They feel outnumbered. Well, it helps them a little bit. It helps them morale a little bit when a big group of elves comes to help the good guys. Now, that might not sound very impressive, but we're not talking about like Ernie the elf. We're not talking about Santa's little helpers. We're talking about elves who have some serious bow and arrow skills, who can kill people. All right. So they come and they join them there in the fortress. And by the way, I'm like losing cool points by the seconds right now. (laughs) If I had any at all, they've all left the building. But they're all in the castle. I love it. They're all in the castle there. It's my favorite scene. And it's getting dark and it begins to rain. And all of a sudden you begin to hear the marching, the stomping. It's intimidating in the distance. And you begin to hear the shrieks and the snorts and the yells of this opposing army. And then you see them carrying these torches, these ugly orcs and goblins that have come to destroy all the good guys. And they begin to fight. And it's not looking good. And they back them up into the castle there. And the good guys are about to give up. And in that scene, there's a character named Aragorn. He's a heroic character. And he looks at one of the other kings who's just... He thinks it's all over, and he said, let's ride out and meet them for your people. It's like this epic moment. The music begins to swell. Uh, They they send the the women and the children down this cavern, kind of escape tunnel, where they'll be safe. And then they they ride out, and they face this enemy army after hearing and remembering this this prophecy from Gandalf, who is this wizard who kind of plays, I don't know, I won't go into all that. Uh, But they ride out, and they face their enemies, and they win, right? And when we see stories like that, we get, in, we get kind of moved and inspired. And what we often do 
and you may not even realize you do this, we wonder what we would be like in that situation. We wonder how brave we would be in that scene. Like, would I be brave or would I be one of the guys trying to sneak with the women and the children down the cave? You know what I mean? Would I be like justifying that? They need someone to chaperone them. I'll go down the tunnel with the women and the children. Or would I grab a sword and would I run out and fight and meet that danger? Now, maybe you're wondering, where in the world is he going with this? Where in my life if I'm going to face a situation where I'm going to need to pick up any kind of weapon and run out and display some type of of bravery in the face of a big, wicked, reckless, demonic army fighting for a kingdom of darkness that wants to destroy my life and my family and everything about me. Well, if you're a disciple of Christ, would you believe me if I said every day that every day you face a battle? And there's a lot of firsts that we find in Acts We've covered a lot of exciting firsts in the life of the early church. Well, this morning, for the first time, we'll see the church in the church age experiencing their first encounter with spiritual warfare, a battle that's more dangerous than any battle you're going to read about or see depicted in a, in a film. It's a battle that's different. It's a battle that we fight with different weapons, but make no mistake, it's a battle that is going to take some bravery and boldness and courage. Now, you'll remember if we, where we were at a couple weeks ago where we left off. We're going to accelerate a little bit, and we're going to get to a part in chapter 4 that I think will really, really help us. So Acts chapter 4, stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed, his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we come to you this morning and ask you to work in our hearts, Father. God, I pray that you would remove this room of any distraction, God. Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear your word clearly, God, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to know your will as a result of being in your word, to walk in your ways as a result of being in your word. God, help us to learn this morning what it means to be bold as believers in a world that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 3, I'll catch you up a little bit. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And by the, a place called the Beautiful Gate, there's a lame man who's been lame since birth, around 40 years of age. And the, a miracle is performed. He reaches out for some change. And Peter says, I don't have any silver. I don't have any gold. I'll give you what I have. And he, uh, a miracle is performed. And he gets strength in his legs. And the lame man stands up and he runs into the temple. And in verses 11 through 25, uh, with a big audience that's gathered there, they're all wow. 
wowed by the healing of this lame man. They're marveling. They're astonished at what they've seen. Uh, He explains to them that all of this is about Jesus. So he begins to preach a message to them. He begins to explain that Jesus is the one who gets credit for this incredible show of power that you have seen. And in verse 12, he basically says, and here's my paraphrase, why are y'all looking at me and John? Like, you, you really, I'm an ordinary fisherman who talks too much. You think I got the power in me? You think I got the piety in me to, to do something like this? And in verse 16, Peter says, this is a complete work of Jesus. This is all about him. And then knowing this is a Jewish audience who are on their way to an Old Testament temple to worship God in an Old Testament way, he wants them to know not just that this is all about Jesus, that this has always been about Jesus. And in verse 13, he uses titles that would have gotten some amens in that Jewish crowd. He uses uh, some titles for God, like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're leaning in because this is, this is how Yahweh was described in the Old Testament. At this point, this is how many of those people, they came and worshipped Yahweh. And Peter explains, Yahweh, the one you're coming to worship, the one you know about, the one you've read about, the one you've heard the prophets talk about, Yahweh glorified Jesus. Jesus is always the one that has been crucified and buried and risen again. Jesus has always been God's plan to come into the world and be the Messiah to rescue sinners. They would have gone into the temple that day and they would have read from Isaiah. They loved Isaiah. Isaiah was one of their favorite prophets that they could have quoted. And he says, listen, the suffering servant that you're about to go in, you're about to talk about and read about. Jesus is that suffering servant. And then here's the bad news he delivers to him. That's who he is. And y'all handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. And in verse 19, he gives him good news. He said, but the good news is, is on the cross, he paid for your sins. He rose again. And if you repent and believe, he'll, he'll blot out all of your sins. And he gives an invitation. And as we see in verse 4 of chapter 4, 2,000 more people, and it probably was more than that because they counted families by counting the men, Thousands more come to faith in Jesus Christ in that moment. And Peter, man, he's crushing it. He's preaching. People are flooding the aisles. Things are going really, really good. What's the next step? What's the next thing that needs to happen? This should be the time maybe when him and John think seriously about beginning Peter and John Ministries. Copywriting that, right? Getting some t-shirts made. Maybe get an office opened. Maybe start a website, maybe launch an app, maybe name a building after these guys, right? Get them a book deal. Maybe it's time to get them a Learjet so they can go on a speaking tour because people are responding. Things are going really, really good. I mean, how is God going to leverage this moment to keep working in and through the lives of his people? No tour. Trial, difficulty, pain, and persecution. Those are the next steps. No book deal. Instead, they get thrown in jail by these bigwigs in the community. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, what are they all so upset about? What is it that Peter and John have done that have caused them... To throw them in jail. Well, it's nothing that they've done. They had no problem with their works. They had no problem with Jesus' works. It's what they said. It was their words. It's because they won't stop saying the J word and the R word. 
The J word being Jesus and the R word, they got some R words they like, right? If they'd have just been talking about rules, they would have had no problem with that. If they'd have just been talking about religion, they wouldn't have any problem with that. If they'd just been talking about righteous deeds that you can do to earn God's favor, they wouldn't have had any problem with that. The R word that they got a problem with that Peter and John won't shut up about is resurrection. They will not stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the captain and the captain right here who throws them in jail is the same one who led the soldiers into Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And he throws Peter and John in the same jail cell that Jesus would have spent the night in the night before he was falsely accused and brutally killed on a cross. For what? Speaking the same exact words. And here they are. I wonder if this is the moment where Peter and John begin to remember Jesus' words in a different way that are recorded in John 15, where he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know what they're learning? They're learning something that we all need to learn when it comes to biblical Christianity, that biblical Christianity isn't always full of clear skies and positive and encouraging K-love. It involves stormy days. It involves bad days. It involves evidently they're realizing pain and suffering, opposition and persecution. And the question is, how will they respond? Well, the next day we see in verse five that they stand in front of the Sanhedrin. That's a big deal. That's the high court in that culture, in that community. It's like their version or our version of standing in front of the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And this is an intimidating scene. In fact, if you could stamp a word over these first 11 so verses there in chapter four, you could stamp the word intimidation. In verse seven, they, these officials, they ask a question that they'd already heard Peter answer, but they ask it again. They ask it again as if they're daring him. Say the J word one more time. What do they say? They say, hey, by what power again, by what name did you do this miracle? And Peter filled with the Holy Spirit right there in the middle of this very intimidating situation with his neck on the line, standing before the people who killed his master, who killed his Lord with boldness. He preaches the same exact message he's already preached. He says, this man I told you was healed by the power of the name of Jesus, the one y'all crucified. And then he says this, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. They didn't like that. They didn't like that. The same reason opposition today doesn't like people who preach a biblical gospel because of the exclusive nature of that gospel. We're not going to get into that right now. But if you're in a place where you're struggling to understand how could there only be one way to God? I don't like that. I like there to be more than one way to God. If that upsets you, if you get stirred up about that, if you get confused about that, or maybe you just get flat out mad about that, I would just challenge you. And we're going to get back to this later in this series about the exclusivity of the message of Jesus Christ. But I would just say this. Have you become so blind in your questions about there not being many, many ways according to what's being preached the way I'm preaching it right now that you can't see the great love that God's even shown us a way, period, one way? He didn't know it was one way. And yet he's made it clear through his word that has been scrutinized through the centuries in like an anvil. It's like an anvil on which many hammers of criticism have worn out stands true to this day that says there's one way to the Father. And Jesus said it. Peter's just simply an eyewitness to what he's seen. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He heard him say it. He saw him die. He saw him come back to life. And he said, I'm going to follow that guy. 
Well, because of the exclusive nature of Peter's message, they got to do something. But they can't do too much because they're good politicians, right? There's people who got really excited about the man being healed, people who got really excited and, and responded to the gospel and who were saved, thousands of people. They don't want to ride on their hands, and so they got to let them go. But before they go, they give a stern warning to Peter and John, and they say, you can go, but listen, don't say another word about Jesus Christ. Don't say one more word about Jesus Christ or else. And Peter and John, they return back to spend some time with their fellow believers with this intimidating report. And this is the part of the narrative where we're on edge. What's going to happen next? What's the next part of this story? How is the church going to respond to this persecution? I mean, this is where we're going to find out. Was this just a little burst of bravery that's going to fade out? Or is there something deeper here that we see in Peter and in these early believers I imagine when, in verse 23, when he goes back to give a report, they're anxious to hear what happens. I imagine there was probably some nervous Nellies in the crowd. Some people who didn't really know what to think about that. I mean, Peter and John, what happened? What happened? Well, let me tell you what happened. Here's what they they told us. They said, don't say the R word or the J word. They sounded like they're probably going to kill us, like they killed Jesus. And some people were probably a little concerned about that. Oh, my goodness. I'm just glad you're back. We almost lost y'all. We thought you were going to be killed then. That was a long night. Maybe we got to calm this thing down. Like, Peter, seriously, maybe you need to hit the brakes a little bit. Maybe you need to slow your roll, right? Maybe you need to stop saying resurrection. It doesn't mean we need to stop believing it. Just stop saying it for a little bit, right? Let's let things calm down a little bit. Let's stop giving such an exclusive gospel, saying there's only one way to the Father, right? There's some other way. John, John's got some good sermons on love. He talks great about that. Let Let him fill the pulpit for the next few sermons. I mean, Peter, you got some sermon series that are a little less offensive, maybe on finances or on dating or family that you could maybe throw out there just till things calm down. They did none of that. Their first response is they pray. And in that little prayer that I read as we stood just a few moments ago, what we learned there is we, we learned the key to the boldness that they've already shown We learn the key to the boldness that they'll continue to show and display. And we learn how we ourselves can be bold, how we can keep our mouths moving about our resurrected Lord and therefore keep the gospel advancing in this world. Three quick keys to being bold witnesses. One is this, get bold by worshiping God. Get bold by worshiping God. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them. Now think about the way they're, they're lifting their voices and they're worshiping God. But think about the way that they're worshiping. Now first, notice that their first response isn't to cower, isn't to retreat. Their first response is not to respond fearfully to the situation. It's to worship God and begin to praise him. But there's something about the way that they're praising him that can teach us something here. Right? Notice that they're specifically exalting his creative abilities. It's like they're taking the situation that feels out of control and they're placing it through prayer with hearts of faith into the hands of their creator. And then they exalt his creative abilities there. Notice what he said. Sovereign Lord who made what? The heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, why is that important? Why is it important for them in this moment to exalt the creative abilities of God, the creative character of God? Why? Because they believe God created everything. And if you believe God created everything, then that means he can move in any situation and change anything. 
This is a word, by the way, for anybody here who's dealing with any of these things I've even already mentioned, whether it's trial, suffering, pain, persecution, opposition, or you're walking through a season of struggle, of hardship. I want to ask you in the middle of that situation, have you turned your attention? Not, I don't want to just say to God, to your creator God and worshiped him for his creative abilities. They're choosing to worship their creator God because they know he can do whatever he wants to do. They've read about it. They've wor- they're worshiping a God they know who can stop the sun in the sky. They're worshiping a God who they know can send a whale to swallow up a renegade prophet who wants to run from the will of God. They're worshiping a God. Who is the Lord, who is the God over all of nature, who can send fire down out of the sky, who can split seas, who can raise his son from the dead, who can make lame people do cartwheels down the street. And surely, if that is the God that we serve and the God that we worship, he can help us in our time of need. This is reminding us about a really important part of our faith. Right? We believe God created everything. Therefore, we believe that he can take off his glove, take off the gloves and do amazing supernatural things in the world that he rules over, that he created and that he sustains. What you believe about God matters. We believe what we teach based on God's word rooted in scripture is that we believe he's a creator God who spoke into nothing and made stuff. That's what we believe. We don't believe in a God who shaped eternal matter out of stuff that already exists. We don't believe in a God who took a little bit of himself, right, and wove and spun that and and created creation out of that. We believe God spoke into the nothingness of nothing and had the power to grow out of that nothing everything that exists. That doesn't jive with a lot of people's view of spirituality these days. Hyperspirituality is very popular. God's in the trees, God's in the flowers, God's in the birds and the bears, God's in the cows and God's in you and God's in me. We believe in a more powerful God who speaks into nothing and then everything exists. Before I had a daughter, I did not pay much attention to Disney movies, specifically Disney princess movies. After my daughter was born, I became somewhat of an expert in that field. And out of all those princess movies, probably my least favorite was Pocahontas. I don't know. I just didn't get into it that much, but I remember watching that with Emma. She was probably four years old, probably sitting there in one of her kind of princess dresses and, and she's singing along and we're watching this movie in the, in the words to the main song go like this, the river and the rainstorm are my brothers. The otter and the heron are my friends. We are all connected in a circle in a hoop. That never ends. And then it goes on to tell the kids to ask a grinning bobcat how it grins. And that's where I had to pause it, right? And go into super serious, young dad, overzealous, spiritual mode, right? And pause it and go, no, I need, I need to preach a message to this little girl right now. Listen, that is wrong. First of all, you never go up to a bobcat and ask it why it grins. It will bite your hand off. God is not grandmother willow. The otters and bobcats, they are not your friend. Otters are mean. Never pet, never pet an otter. And little four-year-old Emma's looking at me like, can you just move out of the way so I can watch the rest of the movie, you know? And we have been able to have some pretty good conversations about uh, some of the messages that can even be communicated through a Disney movie. But that's not what we believe. 
That's not what we believe. That's not Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine is not that God is in everything. It's that God created everything. And if that is true, then certainly we can trust that he can take the gloves off and move in his creation. In other words, in your situation, have you exalted the creative abilities of God in this way? It has it impacted your prayers to where you say, God, you created the world. You can, you, is there anything you can't do? You created the world. You can help me in my financial crisis. You created the world. I believe you can help me break out of this addiction. You created everything out of nothing. I believe you can put my family back together. You created everything. I believe you can heal the disease in my body. You created everything. I believe you can heal this marriage where it feels like we're just existing in this home. We feel like we came into this place today hanging on by a thread. If you created the world and you have authority over all of it, even death, anything is possible with you, my creator, God. That kind of worship, exalting the creative abilities of God, leads to big prayers of faith, even in the middle of our deepest, darkest troubles. And as we'll see in just a few moments, it's going to lead the disciples to pray a big prayer. But maybe in a way you don't expect, so just hold on for a moment. So that aspect of their worship service is going to impact their boldness in a special way, as we'll see. But I do want to make this point. When it comes to worship, when it comes to you turning your attention to God and worshiping him, that will always impact your boldness. Why? Because of what worship truly is. Worship is not just limited to what we do here on Sunday mornings. Do you know that? Worship is, is a lifestyle. It's a daily decision to lay down the totality of who I am because of Christ laying down his life for me. And living in a posture of worship like that is actually the only pathway where you experience true lasting joy, where you experience true lasting delight, where you experience true lasting peace. Now, how does that relate to boldness and faithfulness in evangelism? Because when Jesus is the object of your worship, when he is your joy, when he is your delight, when he is your favorite thing, when he is your greatest treasure, when you're worshiping him and orienting your life around him in that way, you won't be able to shut up about him. Luke 6, 45 says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When the good gift of the gospel seeks down and resonates in your bones, I mean, when it gets down inside of you and he becomes the object of your worship, you're not going to be able to help but talk about it. I like what they say in verse 20. He says, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. It's going to come out. We can't help it. We spent time with Jesus. We got to talk about it. So if you're struggling in the area of boldness, if you're lacking boldness, man, get back to ground zero, right? And flame your worship life once again. So get bold by worshiping God. Second thing is this, get bold by trusting God. And what we see here is that their trust of God's sovereignty helps them stay bold in the face of opposition. A couple of things show us here how they have hearts that trust the sovereignty of God. The first one is in verses 25 through 26, where they're, they're praying. They, they know God's word. They know God's word. They're praying a prophecy found in Psalm 2. I'll read it for you again. It says in verse 25, And through the mouth of your father David, your servant said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then goes on to describe the the, the people who just a few days ago played a part in that fulfilled prophecy. 
And basically what they're doing is this. They're acknowledging, God, we know that the Messiah that you promised in the Old Testament is Jesus. And it's really a fascinating study. If you need just some, some renewed confidence in your life, in your Christian faith, I would encourage you to do a study on the, on the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, over 300 of them, all of them fulfilled in one person, one man, Christ Jesus. But what they're doing by acknowledging this, and this is, this is key to this point, is they're acknowledging that everything that has happened to Jesus, this fulfillment of this prophecy, and then everything that actually happened, they're on the cross, the suffering, the persecution, the opposition. What they're acknowledging right here with this is they're acknowledging that all of that was part of the perfect plan of God. Think about that. That the plan of God would involve pain and suffering and persecution. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 28, where they're basically saying all of those earthly powers and people gathered and plotting against your anointed one who came together with their evil plans. What they were really doing was whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's what verse 28 is telling us. That's a difficult truth for us to swallow. But it's a truth that I'm telling that will help you face opposition with a boldness. It would help you suffer and deal with pain in a way that's, that's for the glory of God. It will help you suffer well. And the truth right here is this, is when we suffer, when we're opposed, when we are tried, that, that never alters the perfect plans of God. In fact, what God does is he uses those times of suffering and those times of pain to accomplish his plan in the world. You know what that means? It means that the suffering and persecution and even evil actions that are part of our life and in this world play right into God's plan coming to pass in our lives. Is that not what we see happening on the cross? Is that not what we see happening in the death of Jesus Christ? While we as humans are ultimately responsible and held accountable for the death of Jesus, his death was ultimately planned by God. And so people, human beings, are nailing Jesus to the cross, but their actions are playing right into God's sovereign plan. I can't pretend to know how all that works. I can't even begin to pretend like I'm going to be able to explain that in a way that we'll all understand it, including this guy today. How is it that it's true on one hand that God is sovereign, that he's overall, that he's fully in control, that he's involved in every intricate detail of the world, that he orders its events in accordance with his perfect plan and yet gives me the freedom to make decisions and yet those decisions that we make, the good, the bad, the ugly, play into his perfect plan coming to pass. That'll make your brain explode. If not, you weren't listening to what I just said. There's a mystery to this. We don't have minds that are able to wrap themselves around all of that. By the way, if that troubles you, because there are times where that definitely frustrates me, just remember this. If we were able to explain our God, he's not a God worth worshiping. If we were able to fully explain all the mysteries of our God, would he be a God worthy of our worship? How all this works together is a mystery. Paul couldn't work it out. That's why he threw his hands up in Romans eleven thirty three 33 and said, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, mysterious are his ways. What we believe as Bible-believing Christians is that as we make free choices, that there's a sovereign God concurrently in, 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 a, in a parallel way with our choices governing the affairs of the world. As we make decisions, 
It's inscrutable. It's difficult to understand. And that's tough for analytical people like me who like to ask why questions. That's tough for me. I got a lot of questions. I share with the Wednesday night crowd. I, I asked a lot of questions when I was young and I'm getting paid back for that a lot right now with my kids. But I have so many why questions. Anybody with me? You just, you just walk through the world and go, why? Right? Like why? Why when the traffic is the slowest is it called rush hour? Why? Who came up with that? Why is the word abbreviated such a long word? Why is the guy that invests your money called a broker? If flying is safe, why do they call the airport a terminal? Like, wow, these are questions that I have. Why? But if you're like me, there's seasons of your life and there are days in your life when the weather's a little stormy, when you go, why? God, if you are in control, why? God, I don't understand the way that you're working. Why? And that question had to cross the mind of those disciples. They're humans. Like this was going well. Why? Maybe they're reminded that a question, why is a question that all of us have been asked? It's even a question we hear Jesus ask on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe they remembered him saying that, but then maybe they're realizing that now they see the bigger picture And they see that all of the persecution and the opposition and all the suffering that was incurred at Calvary, that they stood there wondering why is all of this happening? Our world is falling apart, was actually playing right into God's sovereign plan to redeem sinful humanity and to push the mission forward. He never loses control. He's never lost control. He never has and he never will, no matter what you face. You know what that means? It means when it comes to us advancing the gospel, when it comes to us facing opposition, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. We can keep pressing ahead even in the face of it. You know, what we can also remember is remember that it's within the persecution and within the opposition and within the trouble that he most often mightily shows up in glorious ways. Just look at the book of Acts. Of course, the cross is the supreme example of that. But look in the book of Acts. Every time opponents, we looked at it last week with the resurrection, the opposition on either side of that story, trying to stop it, trying to stomp out the influence of Jesus Christ, start trying to stomp out the movement. And what you'll see every time as we move through Acts, and this is true even to this day, that every time the opposition tries to stomp out the cause of Christ, there's like embers shooting everywhere, sparking wildfires. And it happened right here in the book of Acts. Sparking wildfires that begin to roll out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And God's plan hasn't changed to this day. He still wants to save people around us. He still wants to save people far from us. And his redemptive plans will come to pass even in the face of opposition. So we can be brave. So let me give you some practical encouragement, you know. When you're tempted to, to shy away from that awkward, awkward family member that gets weird when you start bringing up the gospel this week or in the coming weeks, press forward and be brave. When you feel like you don't want to deal with the grumpy neighbor who 
you're not sure how interested they would be in having a gospel conversation, press forward and be brave. When it comes to the ir- irreligious coworker at your workplace, whoever it is, keep leaning forward, opening your mouth, sharing the gospel, clinging to the promise of Acts 1.8. That is true for you. That was not just true for these disciples, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Put your name in that blank, but will receive power and will be my witnesses. And the spirit will be with us. Which means we just need to go out and open our mouth. And when we're hit with opposition, it shouldn't surprise us. But because we know our God is sovereign, we trust his ways. And we know he's working even when we can't see him work. Third point is this. It's very quick. Get bold by praying to God. Now, this is back to my first, kind of connecting this back with the first point. Creator God can do anything. What are they going to pray for? I can think of a lot of things that I would pray for. Hey, how about remove the obstacles? How about the Sanhedrin? Can they not arrest us anymore so that we can preach the gospel? Maybe they could pray prayers like we pray. Hedge of protection, right? Traveling mercies. Which hedge of protection? Maybe we should pray for something bigger than a hedge. I don't know why we always pray for a hedge of protection. Maybe a, you know, a fortified city of protection. I don't know. But they don't pray for any of that. They simply pray. What do they pray for? Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. They don't ask for the threats to go away, but grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That is a powerful moment. Why? Because they're not praying for external deliverance. They're praying for internal perseverance. They're not praying for God to do a miracle that they know he could do. Outside of them, they're saying, I need you to do a miracle inside of me. I need you to give me boldness that I know I'm not going to have when we face the opposition that we are going to face. They're praying that he would work a sanctifying miracle within them to stay faithful as they move into the headwinds of trouble and persecution. Faith to be able to respond to whatever they face with boldness. They pray for boldness and look what happens. Verse 31, and when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the spirit and continued to speak the word with Boldness. And church, I just want to simply ask you this question. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? When's the last time in your trial right now, in your situation? How often are you praying for external deliverance and you haven't stopped and prayed that God would grant you the internal perseverance to move through that trial in such a way that would shine light into the lives of people around you who would look at you? How are you walking through that with that kind of joy and with that kind of peace and with that kind of hope and with that kind of faith? Well, let me tell you how. When's the last time in your time of trouble you prayed? Not that God first would do a miracle on the external. Those are good prayers. But that first God would do a miracle inside of you to be able to walk through that and to suffer well for the glory of God. When's the last time you prayed for boldness to be a bold witness for Jesus in the lives of the people that God's placed around you? When's the last time you prayed for people by name who are far from God that they might come to know Jesus through your witness? See, we pray a lot of prayers, but you know what? If you're like me, as I've been convicted about this this week, my prayers often have to do predominantly with one person. And you know who that person is? Me. Bless me, help me. Heal me, keep me. And those are important prayers. But it's got to stand out to you that their prayer is another folks' prayer. 
They're praying that they would be filled with boldness. Why? So that they can go out and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus so that people who are lost can know Jesus and be known by him. Let me ask you this. If God answered every prayer that you have prayed this year, who would benefit most from those prayers? Other people or you? If God answered all the prayers you've prayed over the last year, how many people, if he answered those prayers in this moment, would be in the kingdom of God? What this is calling us to is something bigger than ourselves. Which is, by the way, the purpose of our life as Christ's followers. To be about Jesus, to be about his mission. So let's get bold. Let's get bold. God did not place you in the neighborhood. He placed you in on accident. God did not place you students in the classroom that you'll be in this week on accident. God did not place you in the workplace you'll be in, the cubicle that you'll be in this week by accident, the office that you'll be in on accident, the construction zone site that you'll be in on accident. He puts you there on purpose for the purpose of pointing those people to Jesus Christ. And if that's gonna happen, You're going to need some boldness. And so this morning, let's pray for that boldness so that we may continue to be the light that God's called us to be, the corner of Hips and Schindler and beyond. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your King. And this morning, if in your heart you're willing to simply admit and agree with God's word when it says that we're sinners and we're separated from God, a holy God, and you'll believe that that God sent his son to come and to die on the cross in your place for your sins and that he rose from the dead, This morning, if you're willing to believe that trusting in his sacrifice on that cross is the only way you can experience a relationship with God, is the only way you can have forgiveness of your sins, if that's the kind of belief that's swelling up in your heart this morning, we want to talk to you. Even in these next few moments as we stand and sing, I'd invite you to come down. I'd love to pray with you and help you take those steps towards following Jesus. The rest of the invitation is real real simple. Hey, let's pray for boldness. Let's pray for boldness. Maybe even walk through those steps this morning. Maybe you don't have boldness in your life because that worship, that personal lifestyle of worship needs to be reignited. Maybe you don't have boldness this morning because you've had a small view of God. And this morning in this scripture, what do we see? He's a big God who we can trust no matter what we face. And number three, pray for it. Pray for boldness this morning.